I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. There's not really a joke we can do for the opening of this one. No, 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 no. I don't think we should do a joke. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there is something here, but never mind. <laughs> Timbuk too fast, too furious. Ah, yes. Timbuk who? Ah. <laughs> the sequel to Timbuk 1. <laughs> <laughs> These are all kind of good. Kind of good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like we have different definitions of good, Ben. <laughs> I don't like him. I don't know. <laughs> Deep cut to... No, never mind. Bye. <laughs> bye. Okay. <laughs> Bye, 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 bye. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss the director's life and career to bring context that helps us view the movies as they may want us to. Back in 2014, my mom and I went to see a film about life in a Malian city that was taken over by jihadists. That movie was nominated for the Oscar for Best Foreign Film and it lost to Pavel Pavlikowski's Ida. And I've never really heard it discussed again. But the movie's images and tone remained with me because it was subtle, open-ended, and painful. And that movie is Timbuktu, the fourth fiction feature by Abderrahman Sasako, a Mauritanian and Malian writer and director. And now, eight years after its release, we're taking a close look at Timbuktu as the popular pick of Sasako's filmography. So tell me, guys, how do you know about Abderrahman Sasako? I have only seen Team Buck 2. That's where I'm coming from. <laughs> cool. Wilson? <laughs> Hello. Good morning. Uh, I first heard about Sisako, I think that year, that 2014 year, where Ida and Team Buck 2 came out and were both vying for Oscars. And I think a couple years later, it played at the film series of our university. And I, I caught it then. And I mm. really, really enjoyed it. Same. But... Mm. Due to a variety of different reasons, I did not return to Sisako until a couple weeks ago when Eli said we were going to be doing his filmography and then ended up diving headfirst in. I, I don't know. I had like a I had a planned watch list and then I sort of just threw that all to the side when I started watching his films because <laughs> even though I, I wouldn't say that I like loved them from the get-go, there was really something, there was like a really a tone or a feeling about them that really entranced me mm. and made me want to search for more. And I think now, having watched all of his available work, I feel like I get him. Mm. I understand. And I understand why I feel so connected to him. Mm. So I'm excited to talk about it. I guess maybe not today as much because I feel like, honestly, Timbuktu and maybe even Life on Earth are the outliers in his four feature film filmography mm. we'll also explain that later on yeah i think i it, it is very fa i think he's a very fascinating director and i think just very unique in his placement in the context of world cinema as well totally agreed and that's funny that you say that about timbuktu being an outlier i was sort of having a similar thought mm -hmm. before this recording. Yeah. So let's slap down a little bit of information about Sisako. Abderrahman Sisako was born in Kippa, Mauritania in 1961. Shortly afterwards, he moved to his father's homeland in Bamako, Mali, where he grew up and was educated in French schools. Sisako studied filmmaking in Moscow at the famous Federal State Film Institute, VGIK, from 1983 to 89. We'll be talking more about that period of time on next week's episode about my deep cut pick, Life on Earth, because his experiences and feelings during that time are arguably more relevant to that movie. But I will say that he saw Stalker by Tarkovsky at the famous Dom Kino Theater and it impacted him a lot. He said to Vice in 2015, quote, those who love Tarkovsky try to imitate him but fail because their main goal is aestheticism. But Tarkovsky's main talent was to turn literary poetry into cinema. His films touch you the way poetry does, end quote. Which I cite here because I feel that also kind of applies to Sisako's movies. Do you agree, Wilson? Yes, yes, I do agree. Yeah, I think the part about poetry... It's, it's very evident in Life on Earth, right? But I think visual poetry is one of the hallmarks of Sisako's filmography. He always, with his 
narrative being more open-ended than closed off to like a central character or two central characters the wandering nature of his camera really allow for just moments of visual poetry be it like an interaction a wordless interaction or just people going about their day the movement of people the movement of animals it i i think this is getting into like a more deeper discussion about his themes and ideas about how he wants to respect a place and mm. his relationship as a filmmaker to the place that he's filming or the place that he's trying to depict. And it's a relationship that is, at least from Sisako's own words, built out of respect. That is very fascinating to me and very, very interesting. Also, another really, really fun fact is for Sisako's second short October, which he made in Russia, he actually got Gregory Rareberg, who shot Tarkovsky's Mirror. That's true. To hmm. be the cinematographer. It's a gorgeous looking short. Also definitely very much an outlier in his filmography, but I would uh, implore people to check it out if, if they really like all of Sisako's other stuff. I think it's a really, really interesting, interesting addition. Sisako's thesis film, Le Joux, found its way into Cannes, where French TV station Canal Plus bought the film. <laughs> Can I say something about Le Joux? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go, go. <laughs> okay. I think Le Joux is much more of a indicative of Sisako's filmography to come, especially because it's made in his... Like, it's set in his home continent. It follows a similar flow as his later feature films. And there's a whole story about how he had to fund it himself. And his advisors at VGIK were all like, we're not going to give you money to make this movie. Oh, basically only his advisor at VGIK stood by him, even after the movie was made, because they didn't see the appeal of this sort of like wandering story about a boy who gets lost from his mother and his father who goes off to be a soldier in the war. And it's also really, really fascinating. These two early shorts were all shot in black and white. And I think the way that he uses space and negative space, and he's playing around with these ideas of presenting spaces in interesting ways mm. or leading you into a place in interesting ways um, was, yeah, I think it was really telling and uh, like paints a better picture of how he came to be as a director. The comment that his advisor gave him that really stuck with him was that his advisor saw in Leju an impulse from Sasako to be a choreographer. What? Mm -hmm. And I find that a really interesting remark. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, he doesn't explain it in the interview I saw, but I believe it has to do with blocking. Yes. Mm. And even like camera distance. Yes. Because in Leju, he's starting to experiment with his fondness for extreme wides, right, Wilson? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a lot of that there. And I think the blocking is very intentional. And I think he always has the camera in mind and the camera placement in mind. But I do remember Sisako saying that it was, he took it as sort of an insult, right? Like, because <laughs> he could only be a choreographer. He could not be a director. Like, mm. I think it was sort of insulting for him. I, I mean, we are getting a little bit into his time in Russia now, but this is important stuff because in a way, I feel that he picks up certain techniques. Yes. Aesthetic techniques from Russia and he transposes them onto his sensibility. Yeah. That's part of what makes him so distinctive and really a world filmmaker. Mm. Yeah. Hard to pin down to one nationality. And on top of that, filmmakers from African countries often get pigeonholed as just African filmmakers, mm -hmm. which is shamefully reductive. Mm -hmm. And in Sasako's case, it's a lot more complex. Yeah, I think Sisiko's time abroad has a larger influence on basically everything that he's made because so much of his ideas are about transnationalism and the connection between these different countries, whether it be families moving abroad or even like the effects of colonization from the West. Mm -hmm. Not directly, but he's trying to really play with these um, links between these different countries. Absolutely. After the success of Le Joux, Sisako moved to France in the 90s, and now he lives in Mauritania. A couple of fun facts. He was the cultural advisor for former president of Mauritania, Mohamed Old Abdelaziz. 
He's married to Ethiopian director Majida Abdi, with whom he has two children. And I'll end off the section on his biography with a quote that he gave to Vulture in 2015. He said, quote, Maybe the reason I came to cinema is because I had no background as a cinephile. I'm still that way. I can spend a whole year and not go see a single film. My passion is to make films, not necessarily to watch them. <laughs> maybe that gives me a kind of freedom, a kind of deep conviction. And maybe that's how I would define what a filmmaker is. <laughs> it's someone who has this very deep conviction, but who doesn't really dare to say it or to show it. <laughs> End quote. Not one of us. Not one of us. <laughs> not one We're of all us. about saying. <laughs> He's not going to listen to this episode. <laughs> I think it's very interesting because Sisako said in... Okay, I want to plug this documentary first. It's called Abderrahman Sisako Beyond Territories. And this is a documentary by Valerie Usuf. In very interesting ways, they she, she they go through his, old, his whole filmography. And he talks about Africa not having a established film culture. Mm-hmm. Like anywhere in Africa. Like there's no established film culture. So there's nothing for him to draw back from, right? So the language of how he presents these spaces and these people, Mm. he is creating that language. Just as a director who is entering an area and going to present it on screen the first time, that is like a big task. I think it's really hard to be like judgmental and subjective when you're trying to portray these places with real people and a lot of the times with Mm non-actors it's a daunting task i think sisiko sometimes succeeds and sometimes fails it is very interesting when placed in the context of timbuktu which is about a real life event that actually happened and there's a sense of real urgency in his filmmaking here he's trying to make a movie to make a point in timbuktu as opposed to his other films where i think the point is not laid out to you as clearly Mm -hmm. no matter the movie in different ways he tends to take on a good sized chunk of responsibility Mm -hmm. over what he's depicting yeah which as you say is a tricky task sometimes it is let's get down a few of his tendencies just for just to have raw material to work with here Narratively, Sisako tends to use an open range of narration with many characters leading their own story threads, as Wilson mentioned. He doesn't use a lot of narrative depth, I've found, by which I mean he tends to stay objective and doesn't directly convey character subjectivity with some notable exceptions, including in Timbuktu. He likes quotidian slice-of-life material, and his dialogue is always at least partially improvised by actors and non-actors. And he uses no rehearsals and prefers to give them the situation. On the style side, Sisako uses documentary elements, but with a composed and controlled camera style, nothing fancy. He likes extreme wides with small figures and wide landscapes, and that poeticism comes out in his quiet and static long takes and in how he uses atmospheric sound to create tone. Mm -hmm. Thematically, I... Definitely want your help on this, Wilson. I find that he is interested in the fragility of life. Mm-hmm. He's very sharply aware of sociopolitics, globalization, and foreign perceptions of Africa. He's lived all over the world, and in interviews, he's always confronted with shallow questions of what he represents as an African filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I'll sum up his feelings with two brief quotations from a 2006 interview he gave to Telemondo. One, he said, quote, people are the same everywhere, end quote. And two, quote, poetry is a revolutionary act, end quote. Mm-hmm. I think those are two little bits of framing that help us out here. Yeah, I think those two quotes are very, very telling what he's trying to explore. And I think you you gave a really good encapsulation of what he, he tries to do. But I would add, I think that colonization <laughs> plays a really major part of at least life on Earth, waiting for happiness, and Bamako. There's sort of like an urgency about like the decay of post-colonial life, mm. right? And I think that is felt a lot of places, like not just Africa, but also East Asia. And I think getting at why I feel so connected to Sisako, I realize that a lot of his films feel like a lot of Tsai Ming Liang's films mm. and a lot of like East Asian cinema directors. Interesting. Because even if they're from wildly different backgrounds and also their roads into filmmaking were very different, their central ideas about connection in a global age as well as the decay of these cities post 
colonial rule or like the effect of colonial rule that is felt on these people and also just the way that size films and Sisako's films feel in tone actually feel very very similar hmm. if, if people don't know who Simon Liang is he is this Taiwanese new wave director who is honestly probably one of the most skillful directors out there working right now and yeah I can't wait to hopefully soon um cover him on the podcast <laughs> I was just gonna say we absolutely should there's too many Taiwanese directors as well <laughs> it's funny that you bring up Simon Liang bookmark that for next episode yeah <laughs> Nice. I don't know what you're going to get at. So many teasers in this episode. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I have this question. I've just been listening because I'm the... (laughs) Hi, Ben. Coming into Sasako with only having watched Timbuktu. I found it interesting. He has only made four features, right? Yeah. Correct. And it's interesting for both of you to highlight two of his features as outliers. (laughs) I don't know if I agree about life on Earth being an outlier. Well, but no... Uh, you know what? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, so like how does a filmmaker have 50% of his film be outliers of his films? Okay. That's a really interesting thing that you're pitching to me. <laughs> and considering I'm at this point probably only going to be able to see that 50% for the recordings, I'll be curious. <laughs> Life on Earth is definitely closer mm-hmm. to it. I would only say it's an outlier because it still feels like he's trying to find his footing mm. thematically and also a little bit stylistically mm-hmm. because I think when he goes into Waiting for Happiness and then into Bamako, he gets a lot calmer behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Like in Life on Earth, you still feel a lot of like the camera moves and everything. I think it's still a lot of direction is happening which is great. I think there are some incredible moments in that film, but I would say he really settles into a groove in those middle two features. And then when he makes his big, I guess, closest to action movie, which is Timbuktu, <laughs> I don't know, things change a lot. He goes widescreen, he goes handheld, even though the way he approaches showing you a space in the edit feels very similar. I think it feels like it became like a glammed up indie Hollywood flick in a way. Mm-hmm. I think that's just the hallmark of handheld cinematography is that it's just been employed a lot by the American indie crowd. <laughs> we ruined handheld. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but I would l- love to get into Timbuktu more. Let's do it. Let's. Sorry, sorry. I was trying to build a <laughs> build a bridge. Thank you for the bridge. <laughs> it's a beautiful bridge. <laughs> Timbuktu is about Kidan, a herdsman and musician who lives outside Timbuktu and owns cattle with his wife, Satima, his daughter, Toya, and a boy who shepherds their cattle, Isan. In the city of Timbuktu, we follow multiple characters as they adapt and resist publicly and privately, emotionally and intellectually, to the increasingly strict and violent impositions of the invading jihadists led by a man named Abdel Karim, who seems to be interested in Satima. Sisako got the idea for the movie when he read an article about a couple who was stoned to death in a town in northern Mali. It was reported in this mundane fashion, as Sisako describes it, like it was no big deal, and Sisako felt revolted. He felt that he could do something about it as a filmmaker. And as he was writing, a shepherd killed a fisherman and then was executed in public violently. And and Sisako wondered about this man's life and his family. He considered making this a documentary, but realized that there's not enough freedom of speech in Timbuktu itself right now, and considered that it might just wind up permitting the jihadists a platform to speak. He also considered making an animated film. I think for the animated film portion, he intended to only show that stoning sequence. Like he was supposed to animate just that sequence that he showed on film. But then he realized that it would have been too pricey to just animate that one sequence. So he decided to shoot the the stoning. We got to go back into that scene in a little bit because that is a strong choice. It is definitely a strong choice and I understand why Sisako wanted to have it animated. Yeah. But I think his decision to keep it in is a little questionable to me. Mm. Well, I don't know. <laughs> we can talk about it later. But mm. in his interview, I listened to a podcast interview that Film at Lincoln Center put out with him after the release of Timbuktu. And first of all, I want to say that interviewer is like horrible. Like you should not <laughs> he it's, it sounded like he didn't even watch the movie or has, has no clue 
what you're talking about one of the top dogs at film at lincoln center i just want you to know i'm cutting this i'm so sorry no 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 you can you can keep it in i'm not gonna name him i don't know who this guy is but i want i i do want to put it on the record that me wilson lie did not like this interviewer and i think you did a really poor (laughs) job um (laughs) it was bad it was bad um and the interviewer called the jihadists islamist extremists or something along the lines but use the word islamist and sisiko replied to that saying that i would not call them islamist i think that the first thing that they take hostage is the religion of islam itself so i would not call them islamist and we'll be using that distinction in this episode as well casting was pretty difficult the end and sisako cast from non-actors musicians actors from around Northern Africa and the EU. They had planned on shooting in Mali, but a suicide bombing at an airport dissuaded them from filming there. They filmed in Mauritania for six weeks with protection from the army, and then two days in Mali anonymously. And Sisako says it was a tense shoot. (laughs) Ben, I want you to hop in here. How do you feel about Timbuktu? I watched it back in 2015, the same time that Wilson mentioned. I remember liking it a lot. And when I went in for the rewatch and before the rewatch last week, I was struggling to remember scenes from the film and I wasn't, I couldn't remember what it was about. (laughs) I straight up forgot it was about jihadists. (laughs) (laughs) But I will tell you that I remember one scene, which is the scene of the young men playing soccer without a soccer ball. That really adhered to my mind. Like even in my memory, it was like completely, I kind of reconfigured the scene in my mind and the way it looked. But the content of the scene, I really remember because it was so surprising, strange, and also mundane. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what the film is. It's a little strange and mundane. And I think I remember liking it at that time because I was more of in a, I was in a kind of Altman binge. Mm -hmm. I was like post some kind of Altman kind of binge. And I think there's some Altman-esque qualities to this that I was responding to like the kind of broad range of narration yeah. mm-hmm. the many characters all responding to the same central events or central circumstances and I really liked how it was able to present a community responding to something right on a subsequent rewatch I think I was hoping for a little more depth in each of those little stories yeah but I think it's okay I mean you don't need that depth because he's trying to show the repercussions of these jihadists coming into Timbuktu in a very kind of multifaceted way, right? Right. It's not just about one person's story. It's not, this story really isn't about Kedan at all. No. It, it is about the whole city of Timbuktu and how the men and women and children are affected by this. And and despite his kind of revulsion at reading this new story, and of course he should be, it is kind of surprising how light his touch is mm-hmm. Yeah. in the way that he treats the material and the way that he presents it it is not especially sensational there are some really violent and disturbing parts but in general i'll say most of the movie is very almost laid back yeah and trying to present this situation from a almost objective distance view to kind of give you a sense of its quotidianness even though it is extremely non-quotidian situation that they're all living in yeah Hmm. I find it really interesting. And I mean, I don't have context of the rest of Sisako's films to really understand whether that's just his kind of MO when he goes and attacks these stories. No, Ben, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think like maybe it is the outlier in my head, but I think you really got at the core of how Sisako makes his movies Mm. to explain what he tries to do in deep cut terms (laughs) i would say that he does in a narrative film what wiseman does in a documentary film oh right in a way I, i get it yeah touching the surface of many different characters in order to paint a picture about the whole place Mm. basically Mm. singular scenes can have their impact or they don't have to have their impact but when put in sequence and seeing the whole picture you sort of let it sink over you. Mm. Sisako does this in a more economical way, obviously, because he's a narrative filmmaker. He Everything that he creates is ends up being really important. But I think the approach is very similar. And that's also what really struck me the first time I saw his films. I was like, oh, wow, he's really operating on a different plane of mm. audience understanding or audience getting it. It's it's more macro than, than micro. Totally. I think having character like Kadan to be like sort of the central focus is a very astute art cinema move. 
Hmm. Where like you want to present something in broad terms, but you know that it's going to lose people. So, you know, you put that very thin skeleton of what seems like a plot right. to hold people's attention. And I think it feels very considered that he does that to kind of split the difference between just doing something extremely art house and kaleidoscopic and doing something that is more plot based or like following a single character. Yeah. So I think he really like specifically tried to split the difference there so that you, he wouldn't lose too many people in terms of his actual aims in the film or like what he was really trying to do in the film. Yeah. I would say that Timbuktu veers on the more plot driven side mm, wow. compared to the three other films in his filmography. I don't know if you would agree, Eli. Definitely. It's already so not plot driven. Yeah, this is already <laughs> the most like straightforward you're gonna get. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So what do y'all think about Timbuktu? <laughs> <laughs> I really like Timbuktu. There are a few things that stylistically really connect me to Sisako, and I think one of the main things, or one of the ones I'm going to... Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about is how Sisako shows you a space. Like, the way that he constructs his narrative. He shows you a space in, like, bits and pieces. In Timbuktu, it's it's very hard to explain because I think he, he strays away from this a lot. But I think starting off a scene in a close-up or an insert and then cutting around to let you as the audience start to construct how everything fits spatially and sort of getting that disconnect at the start where you're like, oh, how do I place this person? Or how do I place what I'm seeing mm. in a larger space? And then him leading you through it and... As he's leading you through it, you discover different contexts about the space. I feel like there's a lot more examples of this in Life on Earth, but I think he still does it in this film. And I think the, just the, the way that he constructs and edits a scene is really fascinating to me. And I think he does this really well in Timbuktu. But narratively, I think it, it is very strong. I think the story between Kidan and the fisherman is great core of a narrative to have because it, it helps with the children you're able to build this connection you have this pathos with them as soon as Kidan gets arrested them being on the outskirts of the continuous violence that happens uh, inside the city is very interesting because it's like oh everyone is still subject to this jihadist rule you're like no one is spared Sisako's approach to filmmaking with all these open-ended dropping into these different stories allow us the scenes where the rulers confront this fishmonger for not wearing gloves to sell her fish and she has an outburst at them and, and shouts at them and the jihadists also impose like a no music rule and you see these musicians getting taken in by the rulers for playing music and I think the different ways that we see these local people defy this rule, mm -hmm. like very strongly defy this rule. I don't exactly what know what exact picture it's trying to paint, but I think it was very compelling to watch for me as a viewer. I think the characterization of the jihadists is so funny mm -hmm. in an uncomfortable way sometimes, and also in a blatantly funny way because they are so ineffectual in some of the ways that they are trying to police people's behaviors that they barely instill terror in the people that they are terrorizing. Yeah. That the resistance is so given that people are not afraid to resist because they just do not understand what they're doing and the only reason they listen is because these people have guns. Yeah. Abdul Karim's face is one of confusion, you know? <laughs> That's so well put. He like wants to like control people, but then he doesn't seem to know what he's doing. Yeah. yeah. I find the characterization so interesting and like just like amusing. And then they have AK-47s. And <laughs> it is not what you think this movie would be if you like read the, the plot summary. Not at all. When the fish mongo was talking about how like, oh, how the hell do I sell fish when I'm wearing gloves? This shit makes no sense. And then the guy that is telling her is just like kind of like dumbstruck mm -hmm. and doesn't know how to deal with her because she's so forceful and assertive against him that she's just like, okay, I'm just going to turn myself in. And it's almost like if she didn't do that, they wouldn't. Yeah. Like she was like, yeah, just chop my hands off, just do it. And it's like, <laughs> no one's saying anything about that. But because they understand that this is what the jihadists think they should be doing. Right. You know? Exactly. They are all kind of playing a role more than pushing what they think is religious belief. Mm. Yes. You know? They're more playing a role because actually what they care more about is like by taking this role, they actually are able to force people to do what they want. Yes. Force women into marriages with them or like feel this power trip. 
If anything, I wish this film was able to investigate more into why these people landed in this role or like why they wanted that kind of power trip mm-hmm. because I think it lacks a bit of perspective there. I almost wish, this might not be a good suggestion, but I almost wish that it followed the jihadists as almost the core characters instead mm-hmm. because it's so interested in the psychology of like why you would do this. Mm. You know, like what kind of person would do this? Who is going to say, I used to be a rapper and now I'm a jihadist? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's so fascinating and I just want to know more. It is really fascinating that the jihadists are the most fallible and flawed characters. Mm. Yeah. The woman in the fish market is steadfast. The local woman who owns a chicken who's based on an urban legend folk hero from the area is otherworldly. The imam is wise. And Kidan is very noble. And in a very short film about killing kind of way, he's positioned to show that even when he does something wrong, what happens to him is still wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting that then the jihadists have more wrinkles to them in a way that in other movies we might say they get more of a human treatment. But that's not quite fitting here. Mm. Sisako said to The Guardian in 2015, quote, the most terrible thing about this is that they are people like us. It's always hard to say, but they are, end quote. Mm. He knows what he's doing by making the jihadists the most, maybe even relatable. Mm. I feel like every time you have a story that is about vile acts and even real life vile acts Mm -hmm. exactly as we've talked about plenty of times on this podcast (laughs) like when you have films that are dramatizing these things there always is a conversation about the humanization of the people that commit these things Mm -hmm. and i think of a film like downfall which you know is about hitler and i think that was part of that conversation i always find that that is an ironic statement because these people are human Yeah. yeah their impulses are human you know immorality is human exactly and so humanization isn't necessarily wrong in the dramatizing it's if anything it can serve to kind of investigate how this kind of evil arises Mm -hmm. i mean one of the standout scenes is also when there's a bunch of jihadists like sitting around some alleyway or like street and so like the way that the this conversation is presented to you is that it seems like they're talking about something that is related to their jihad but it's not it's about the World Cup yeah. <laughs> and soccer. Like the scene is so written like that is it you know that it is written to be comedic. It is written to have a punchline. Yes. When you hear the name Zenedin Zidane, you're like you're like, oh, that is a punchline. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that it does this, that is trying to kind of find comedy in these milk toast terrorists. I find it a very interesting Yeah. They're talking about soccer players. Especially even like after banning the playing of soccer yeah. in the village. I think that's the most like telling part, right? Yep. There's like the jihadist who secretly smokes. They, they like all betray their own idea or what they say is the right Islam or practicing jihad. And mm-hmm. they're betraying their own beliefs. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Ben, when you said that he wants you to see that these people committing these crimes are real people. Mm. They can be real people because they were real people Mm. that were committing these atrocious acts against this town and against this village. It makes me think of a few different types of tools or strategies that filmmakers have at their disposal to decry something horrible that they see in the world. There is... Spoof and satire a la The Great Dictator, which brings powerful wrongdoers down a peg by exposing them as ridiculous. Mm. On the other end of the spectrum, there is something like Schindler's List, a movie I have many opinions about, which goes the pure brutality depiction of horror Mm. route, arguably sensationalizing material that maybe should not be sensationalized. (laughs) Yes, maybe. That's a big can of worms for another time. I have many opinions. Sasako is sort of doing both here because the violence escalates as it goes on. And he's doing a third thing by making everything quotidian and low-key and slowly turning up the heat. In a really great interview that happened sometime in the mid-2000s with the African Film Festival, Sisako said, quote, I believe that if one wants to denounce something, it is preferable not to hit people with it, not to beat them up. One reaches people through a narrative form that is poetic or by creating an atmosphere, Mm -hmm. end quote. That makes me think about 
how he is depicting these violent acts. So let's go there now. Okay, we're going. (laughs) When it does finally come, Sisako shows you the stoning very briefly, almost flinchingly, and moves on. When he shows you a lashing of a young woman for reclining in a room and singing, it is turned into an act of resistance by having her sing through the lashing. And finally, the climax and denouement of the movie happens very quickly in which Kidan and his wife Satima are shot. These are the three big moments of physical violence on screen. I'd say the defining characteristic is their brevity. Mm -hmm. But does that mesh with the overall tone of calm and quiet observation in the rest of the movie or do these moments stick out for you in a way that bumps how is he using violence here and how does it affect you as a viewer i think they're meant to stick out because you're lulled into this sense of feeling like this film is going to be low-key and like being a quiet investigation about what they're doing but then you need these really sharp spikes of violence to kind of remind you that Yes, they can seem relatable, but they're also capable of things. Mm-hmm. You need that spike to kind of jolt you out of it a little bit. Yeah. To kind of recontextualize the kind of quotidianness. Because it is a very harsh juxtaposition. I think the bump is intentional. You need that to kind of make the point that the film is making. Well said. I agree with Ben. The stuff I said about the stoning earlier in the episode, that was just because the shock value of seeing that image and the framing of the heads so large in the frame. I think me not knowing what was happening until the rocks started coming, I was really taken aback because I didn't remember that from my original watch. Yeah. So watching it this time, I really like was the biggest bump out of all the bumps that was included in the film. It's always a question I have is, what is the utility of shock that comes from depicting real violence. Right. As evidenced by Sisiko's previous films, he's able to create such a strong mood and such a strong emotion with just atmosphere and without the need for the bumps. But I understand the need for the bumps in this story because the real life story requires the bumps. But he he is a very masterful filmmaker that is able to convey a feeling without the need to show it to show the exact violent acts, but I understand the decision that he made to depict it in the film because it is important. Yeah, it's always a tricky balance. It is, it is. I want to talk a little bit about the transnationalism in this film because I think that is very important and I think in a way you could say this invasion of Timbuktu is sort of a modern colonization of the city. Mm. And I think the most obvious and repetitive way that this is expressed is through translation and miscommunication and the amount of times information is relayed through a translator was really fascinating. Mm. It sets a good atmosphere for all the interactions that there's this barrier between them and a lot of Sisako's films try to breach that barrier, right? This nationalist or this language barrier that people have with one another. In this film, it's oh, how do we breach that barrier in order to to commit violence against this group of people? Mm -hmm. But in his other films, it could be about connection with other people. I think the idea of power flows between nations and I I think it's just so vast that there's so much to to explore there. I'm glad that this still fit within Sisiko's own thematic concerns, like larger thematic concerns about the connection between the different countries and flow of power. I don't know. I I, I think there's, it's, it's, it's just such a well to dig from. I don't know how you guys felt about all the um, uh, the translation that was going on and the disconnect that the jihadist had with the local people that they were trying to govern. Not even govern, terrorize. And within themselves. Yeah, and even within themselves. I mean, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was like, what do you guys think? But it just it, I just wanted to point it out because it was something that continues to pop up in his filmography. And I think it's just very important for him like even in the the film that he's going to make or hopefully going to make 
which is called The Perfumed Hill. It's about this love story between a Chinese person and an African person. Uh, he, he's always thinking about connections between countries, whether it be good or, or bad. That's a great point, too. I was going to say that this is an outlier for me because it is less about colonialism than his other movies, but I am fully persuaded by this. Yeah. Just in another way. Hmm. It's his own colonialism. <laughs> I would be remiss if we did not talk about the cinematography here. Mm -hmm. It pretty. <laughs> it good. It's really good. One of my favorite shots of all time is in this movie. And it is the... Wait, can I guess? Can I guess? Can I guess? Can I guess? Oh, yeah, yeah. Guess, 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 guess. <laughs> it is after he dies. After Kadan kills the fisherman. And he walks away. It's that really long shot. Is it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, sweet. But well, what makes you guess that is my favorite shot? <laughs> I don't know, Eli. I think because it's like a really good shot. <laughs> it stands out. It stands out in this in this film. It really does. That's the other image that I remember from the film. Yeah. Before I rewatched it, like that shot as well as the soccer stuff. Those are the things that I remembered. Yeah. He just waits. <sighs> he just holds that extreme, extreme wide, and lets Kadan walk the whole way back. This is an example of how he uses the camera to convey something broadly. He is literally going very wide and not putting you close to Kadan's emotions here, but still conjuring a very strong tone and feeling of guilt about what Kadan has done. Mm -hmm. The wide shot puts physical distance between you and him, but it also makes you feel the distance that he needs to cover to run away from the scene of the crime. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I always find this distinction of like close-ups being more emotionally intimate to be a false dichotomy. Yeah, like it's not really true all the time, you know? Like it's really dependent on circumstance. So like a shot like that can put you close to Kidan because you are now in the same hit space at him. You see what he sees. How far he needs to run mm. it can work the same way a close-up does like if you imagine the shot as like a handheld of his face running and sprinting and like panicking it has a very different effect like yes you're in his emotional space but then it's all about what the actor is able to elicit from you based on his facial expressions but here it's like how about i let you see what the actor sees and then you can feel what he's feeling because right. you know how you would feel if you were him but and you also have the ability to see amadou who has been shot trying to cover that ground to get to the edge of the water because he's still in the water mm. and i think that paired with in the same frame kidan running away is such an impactful end to that sequence and marker of basically a halfway point in the in the film. Mm. Yeah. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it feels like it. Speaking out of my ass. Yeah, I think that is the centerpiece. I yeah. think you're right. Sisako finds really creative ways to convey emotion that don't rely on performance because he is using non-actors. He can't ask a ton of them all the time. That's not to say he doesn't trust his actors. He does. Mm -hmm. But I really admire his ability to stage and frame creatively mm -hmm. to find these alternate, often lower key ways of expressing emotion and creating mood. It's really masterful. Mm -hmm. And quiet. Quiet and masterful. We love a quiet movie. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about a little bit about the response to the film because it is... Sisako's popular pick. By far, it is the one that got him his Oscar nomination. It got him the con standing ovation. Sisako's intention was to make the biggest film he could make. He could he wanted to reach the widest audience he could because he wanted to bring to light this real life thing that happened to this town. Like in order to do that, I feel like he sacrificed a lot of I guess his own stylistic tendencies, but it really did pay off, right? In one of the interviews he said he wasn't able to get that big of a reach with this film. He wanted to make a big movie. He wanted to make a movie with a budget that could tell an impactful story that would get out there. I feel like he achieved exactly what he wanted to do. I wish it were talked about more still today. Yes. It's worth more acknowledgement than we can shine a light on. We got our tiny little LED. <laughs> <laughs> we're shining a light. We're trying our best. We're trying our best. Famously, it got a 10-minute standing ovation at Cannes. And for Timbuktu, Sisako was the first African-born Black filmmaker to be nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. Note that many white African-born filmmakers have been nominated. Right. 
the anecdote that Sisako tells Vulture in 2015, I find special and very interesting. He says, quote, I was present recently when we showed it in Mauritania and I saw the reaction. The audience reacted to two specific scenes, which to me were very important. The first was when we saw the men playing soccer without the ball, the people in the audience started to applaud. And then when we saw the singer being beaten and she continued to sing, they applauded as well. They appreciated and they understood this form of resistance, end quote. It's always interesting when you get to see a glimpse of how other audiences in other parts of the world respond to the same images and sound that you saw. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. Yes, Sisako is the first African-born Black filmmaker to be nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. But I think the link between him and the the white-born African directors is that he's still has that transnational background to him. Mm-hmm. He has said in interviews, and I think it's very true that there's a big tradition of singing and of music fostered in Africa itself. But for film, a lot of that has to be fostered and built elsewhere as well. Mm. But I feel like watching Sisiko's movies, there's so many stories that can be told by not just Sisiko himself, by other filmmakers as well. Even it has been nearly 10 years since this movie came out, I hope that people watch this and then also dive deeper into Sisiko's other films and also maybe other African directors as well. Because I feel like to grow up in a place without a film culture or a film history is so rare in this day and age as well. Because there are directors, there are world cinema directors that are coming from all corners of the earth. There is a reason that African films have been pushed aside when we're talking about the global film canon, but also realizing the lack of local infrastructure and support for filmmakers is also very telling about that point as well. It was just really interesting to read about and hear about African cinema. I would definitely not call myself an expert on African cinema at all, but I think if I would speculate a little bit of why Timbuktu made an impact when it did, is that if you look at like the way that world cinema is viewed and the way that it is appraised, it is appraised with a Western perspective. Yes. Yeah with a European perspective. So even if it's not American, it's Europe that is like making a case for like which of these are important, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so a film like Timbuktu is able to penetrate the attention of the world because it has themes about jihadists, which is something that the world understands and is maybe intrigued by. Mm -hmm. And that is why I think this is able to kind of breach and cross over to having more of a wider appeal. But if you were to make a more specific African film about African issues those things would be less interesting to a quote-unquote world audience, (laughs) meaning the world audience in the westernized parts of the world. Yeah, a.k.a. the rest of his filmography. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Because I see that with a lot of other kinds of films. Because I was... Recently, someone made a comment about a Singaporean short film, and he was talking about how he was looking at the Letterboxd reviews. He said he liked the film, but the film uses colloquial English, which is, from a Western point of view, extremely broken English. And many of the Letterboxd reviews about uh, were asking the question of why are these people speaking in a broken English? Oy. Like, that's so weird. And because they're like European and or from the UK or whatever, and they just have no touchstone to understand why the language is spoken that way. Mm-hmm. Nor curiosity about exactly maybe it's something that I'm lacking in my perspective, not something that the movie is doing wrong. Right. Like stuff like this just is so difficult to travel to a quote unquote world audience because the world audience is actually not the world yeah Mm -hmm. even if the themes could be universal like i understand that some themes are just not universal or like some issues just are so specific that it might not make sense or like be interesting to everyone but even if it is universal once it has those like cultural curiosities that the western world cannot understand then it becomes so difficult for them to make sense of it or to like care about it yeah same with in that same kind of conversation, we're talking about how, like with Singaporean films, Singaporean films in English, much harder to sell than a Singaporean film in a quote-unquote foreign language. Mm. Because it lacks exoticism. Right. It lacks a feeling of foreignness. In fact, if anything, the English is more foreign to them because it is not the English that they understand. Mm. Yeah, so 
I think that kind of stuff is kind of important when we talk about how world cinema is received. Yeah. Because the people who receive it are not everybody. The people who receive it are critics from very specific parts of the world. Imagine African cinema that is completely in English. You know, mm. I'm sure that critics will feel that disconnect. Right. They would rather it be subtitled so that they can be like, oh, you know, this is a foreign film and I don't have to reconcile how I think it should sound in English mm. to what it actually does sound like realistically in English. Mm. Or like what I think Africans sound like or what I think an African movie should sound like. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I don't know. I always find this very interesting. This is making me reassess and consider... Sisako's statement that we've cited at the top of the episode that people are the same everywhere because there's a tension or something to prove inherent in that statement. Mm-hmm. People both are and are not the same yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yes. When it comes to movies from non-westernized parts of the world, there is a lot of projecting onto those movies that happens mm-hmm. of exactly what Ben's saying, this idea of what people from that other part of the world are like. Right. Sisako is very aware of this and thwarts that, I find, in very interesting ways and finds ways to not stoop to meeting that projected image. I think we're going to see more of that next week with Life on Earth. Yes. Can't wait. I'm excited to reach 50% of this guy's filmography. (laughs) (laughs) Not including short films. Honestly, Ben, honestly, Ben, it's not, I don't think it's that hard to, (laughs) to knock off a couple more. If you, if you, if you like Life on Earth, I think you're like, Bamako is my personal deep cut. After seeing your review, I was like, hmm, Bamako looks (laughs) really interesting. (laughs) It is all related, right? It's all related to our Western constructed ideas of a film canon yeah like if you feel strongly about those wilson i think you should bring a deep cut <sighs> yeah let's do bamako too let's just do sasako that's only four <laughs> films <laughs> we make the rules should we do all four <laughs> holy fuck <laughs> Are we deciding this on air right now? Like you're so close, you might as well do it. <laughs> well, I just feel like talking about life on Earth, it's hard not to talk about Waiting for Happiness, not together, because they are basically sister films. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Eli, have you seen Waiting for Happiness? I haven't yet. Okay, okay. This season, we do four films for every character. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Deco will run forever at this rate, then. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description of this episode. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care. And we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Nice. Where's the sequel? Tim Buck 3. Tim Buck 3. <laughs>